No, it's great to be with you guys uh, this morning. I just really appreciated that word about season change um, that came early on. Is it Christelle? Is that her name? Um, from Song of Solomon. I think that the interesting thing for me is I'm going to bring you like a, an exhortation this morning, and quite a strong one, uh, to action. And although it's an exhortation to action, it's in the context of a season change which God's bringing. The winter has passed. The spring has come. The flowers are emerging. There's a new song in the air. And I think there's a difference uh, when you are exerting yourself for the kingdom of God in the context of a season change than when you're exerting yourself for God in the dead of winter and it's, it's a struggle. And I, so I really appreciate that, that word uh, this morning. So if you have a Bible, turn with me uh, to Acts chapter 17. I've called this, uh, well, I've got two titles for this sermon. One, the boring one, is Paul in Athens. It's very utilitarian. And the other, which is a more interesting sermon title, is Do You Really Care? Do You Really Care? So Acts 17, I'm reading from the New Living Translation, which is a, a, a really, really good new translation that's out, and I'm loving it. But anyway, verse 16 onwards, Acts 17, 16 forwards from the New Living Translation. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply troubled by all the idols he saw everywhere in the city. He went to the synagogue to reason with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles, and he spoke daily in the public square to all who happened to be there. He also had a debate with some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. And when he told them about Jesus and his resurrection, they said, what's this babbler trying to say with these strange ideas that he's picked up? Others said, he seems to be preaching about some foreign gods. They're not our gods. Then they took him to the high council of the city. Come and tell us about this new teaching, they said. You're saying some rather strange things, and we want to know what it's all about. It should be explained that all the Athenians, as well as the foreigners in Athens, seem to spend all their time discussing the latest ideas. So Paul, standing before the council, addressed them as follows. Men of Athens, I notice that you are very religious in every way. For as I was walking along, I saw your many shrines. And one of your altars had this inscription on it, to an unknown God. Well, this God, whom you worship without knowing, is the one I'm telling you about. He is the God who made the world and everything in it. Since he's Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't live in man-made temples. And human hands can't serve his needs, for he has no needs. He himself gives life and breath to everything, and he satisfies every need. From one man, he created all the nations throughout the whole earth. He decided beforehand when they should rise and fall, and he determined their boundaries. His purpose was for the nations to seek after God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move 
and exist. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. And since this is true, we shouldn't think of God as an idol designed by craftsmen from gold or silver or stone. God overlooked people's ignorance about these things in earlier times, but now he commands everyone everywhere to repent of their sins and turn to him. For he has set a day for judging the world with justice by the man he has appointed, and he proved to everyone who this is by raising him from the dead. When they heard Paul speak about the resurrection of the dead, some laughed in contempt, but others said, we want to hear more about this later. That ended Paul's discussion with them. But some joined him and became believers. Among them were Dionysius, a member of the council, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Interesting little story. So do you really care? Or Paul in Athens, you choose. My, I've got four points. The first one is this. Are you concerned? Are you concerned? The English translations describes Paul, Paul, describe Paul's reaction in a variety of different ways, as distressed, as deeply troubled, as provoked within himself, as stirred. You can see that in verse 16. Deeply troubled, the New Living uh, Translation says. And when I speak to believers, as I'm sure is true for you as well, I mean, it's very rare to meet a believer who doesn't express a desire to want non-believers to discover Christ. All of us have a desire that those who don't yet know Christ would come to know Christ. We're convinced that this is the good news and we want to share it. We want people to come on Sundays, not next Sunday, because you're not here. Uh, but the Sunday afterwards. <laughs> or, and we want people to come to come back again. You know, that's a kind of a general kind of desire that we have. And we also are aware that we face certain challenges in our culture. And I'm sure your challenges in Stellenbosch are slightly different from ours, kind of in the center of Cape Town. But, you know, many people have grown up with Christianity. This isn't like a, ooh, this is a new idea I've never heard of before. Our challenges are slightly different from Paul's uh, in Athens, people kind of believe already, or they sort of believe. It's not a kind of saving belief, but they kind of believe in God, but somehow it hasn't gripped their, their lives. Others have tried church. They've been part of church, or they grew up in church, and they've kind of moved on. It presents a different kind of challenge for us. And the other challenge is, of course, some people who just don't go to church anymore. It's just it's not part of their lives. It's not part of their thinking. It's like there's, a, there's an apathy for some, it's a been there, done that. For some, it's just, this isn't just part of my life. So how do we respond to these things? Well, I think like Paul, we ought to have a concern. We ought to care about those who don't know Christ. He was distressed. When was the last time you were distressed by the fact that people aren't gathering to worship Jesus in large numbers? Have, we, have you ever really felt personally troubled unsettled and distressed about that. It's not primarily because these Athenians were particularly poor or overly rich or that they were always drunk 
or always getting into trouble, in and out of jail, in and out of jail. It's pri- the concern that was aroused in Paul was primarily because they were following false gods, false hopes, false promises. That's what they were following. And people in our day are trying to find satisfaction and purpose in their lives through many varied means, looking this way and that. For, for whatever reason, though, Christ isn't in that picture. So we're not exactly standing in a situation where we're, there's lots of um, little um, icons or little, um, uh, what, what's the name? You know, where there's a little shrine. You know, we're not surrounded by physical shrines everywhere, but we are surrounded by a people who are looking to a, a multitude of different hopes rather than to Jesus Christ. And Paul was distressed. I wonder, are you distressed at all? He was distressed and he took action. Ooh, that's where it gets interesting. He was distressed and he took action. In one sense, he was responding to what he saw, but his approach and the Christian approach generally is that he initiated the evangelistic moment. Paul sees that people are putting their hopes in other things. They're banking spiritually and eternally on other things, and Paul initiates the evangelistic moment. He sees the city as being in need of truth. He sees himself as he ought to, which is a Christian who's on a mission, and that the mission is to bring Christ to people. He's not waiting for them to start the process. He doesn't go to Athens and stand there and say, I'm just going to be really nice. It's good to be nice. I'm going to be really good, and I'm just going to wait for someone to come towards me magically and kind of start saying, hmm, which God do you believe in? He initiates the evangelistic process. That's, as a, as a Christian, what you and I are to do. He's been sent to generate that conversation and to help facilitate that change. Now, as, uh, as was said, Joe and I are rooted in, the, in a, we lead a city center congregation in Cape Town, and our vision as a church is to renew Cape Town through the gospel. But our particular mission is to the city area itself. And that mission is pretty broad. So to say that we're missional involves a wide range of things. That mission includes evangelism, but it's more than evangelism. So the mission that we're on is broader than just evangelism. The mission we're on includes serving the poor, um, getting involved in housing projects, in the health of people, in business, encouraging healthy businesses, in family life, and a whole range of things. That's the broader mission that we're on. So I want to make a distinction, if I can, to clarify between mission and evangelism. Mission is the advance of the kingdom of God into every area of life. It's a broad brief, if you like. It means that we're engaging in and influencing the life of our towns 
at every level, spiritually, socially, culturally as well. That's all part of the mission of the church. Evangelism is directly telling people about Jesus, who he is, what he did, and why you need him, and, and how you can be forgiven. <laughs> yeah, that's evangelism. So they're two different things. I wouldn't die on the hill. They ought to be one. But the reality is mission is the overarching context of all of life until Jesus returns. Mission isn't something that we occasionally do. Mission is the context in which we do everything else. It's like the umbrella under which we do everything else. Worship, discipleship, sanctification. It's all in the context of this now phase, this now season that we're in, which is a missional one. We are, the old-fashioned way of talking about it was the church militant versus the church triumphant in heaven. So we're still, there's a task. We're on mission right now. Evangelism is a vital part of that task. It's arguable whether the mission can really move forward with any great strength if evangelism isn't actually happening. So the two things are joined, but I just want to draw a distinction. Let me illustrate that. Uh, when Joe and I went to help a new church get going in Newcastle-upon-Tyne, up in the north of England, one of the first questions that I asked them was, so, you know, what's the most kind of evangelistic outreach type thing that you're doing? And it was an easy answer. It was a mums and toddlers group that took place, I think, on a Tuesday morning. And uh, it was fantastic. Loads and loads of local mums had made it their mums and toddlers group. So that by far, the Christians were outnumbered by non-Christians. It was the most non-Christians that would be in the building at any time. And uh, it was relationship building and, and loads of different benefits. But as I began to talk to the more kind of evangelistically motivated mums, I realized there was a frustration that even though it was set up to serve the community, it was doing that. And even though, big win, the community owned it as theirs, big win it became as difficult to actually get the gospel into that context as, <laughs> as any other kind of structure that they'd been out that the church wasn't running. It, over time, it just became very difficult to actually get the gospel in in any way. So they tried a number of different things. They tried to do a kind of a, a presentation to the kids, which is about Jesus with them, but it was just chaotic. It was difficult. And so we looked at different things that we could do. How can we actually, so missionally it was great, connection with community. How can we get the gospel in? They tried a testimony here and this, it was very difficult to make it work. So what, when Easter came along one year, we said, how about we do a, a, like a real beautiful banquet on a big long table for all the mums. We provide childcare for the kids in another room. And this is like a, just a beautiful, we serving you, and then an after-dinner speaker, or after lunch, I think it was a lunch uh, speaker. And that's what we did. So we managed to get the gospel in to a missionally rich opportunity. Do you see the distinction? Um, and uh, yeah, I, I did the preaching that day. I, I preached on two kisses, two people who kissed Jesus. That was the topic of the talk. I won't tell you that message. It's a good, I'll do it another time. It's a great message. Two people who kissed Jesus. 
And at the end of that, the response option was to join a study, an evangelistic study. I didn't call it an evangelistic study. A study to find out more about Christ and how he can change your life. And people were converted. Some of the women got converted as a result of that process. So we can be missional, but you have to inject somehow evangelism into that. There's a distinction. We can be healthy missionally, but still not be very evangelistic. So the power to bring change is in the gospel itself. All our attempts to build community are absolutely beautiful and fantastic, but we need to step across that line somehow, whether it's personally in a friendship with someone or your neighbor or whatever, and share the gospel. Let me give you another example. Um, there is a business owner who, who's just near our building in Clough Street uh, in, in, ta- in Cape Town. And uh, I've been getting to know him over the last two years or so. Not a believer. Uh, he started a fantastic uh, restaurant. And I was in there last Tuesday. Was it last Tuesday only? And uh, go there. I do um, studies with someone. I'll talk a little bit about that every uh, Tuesday morning. And uh, we do studies in, in that restaurant. So we've got to know the staff, and we've got to know the owner really well. Now, I heard, overheard him moaning about needing to go to home affairs and da 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 and get documents of his, all his employees certified and da 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 So I said to him, hey, I can do that for you. I'm a commissioner of oaths. I can certify documents. This is a true copy of that. Uh, and I, I won't charge you for that. It's fine. We'll do it. Let's, I, why don't you come over to, over, literally over the road, to my office, we'll do it. I've got to have all the originals and the copies, and we'll do it. And he's like, wow, thanks so much. Came over, we had about an hour together, and it was just a wonderful conversation. He's now talking about the amount of investment he's put in. The business has been going three years. He is making more this year than he's made last year, which is great, but it's still like, oh, the challenges, staffing challenge, reliability challenge, quality challenges, you know, all the kind of maintenance challenges that are there. He's a very skilled Italian chef. And um, at the end of that time, we did all the documentation. At the end of that time, I just said, can I pray for you? He said, sure. So he actually let me pray for him. I prayed for him, and I'm, I wanna, I'm blessing him. Now, that's not quite yet evangelism. I'm hoping that in our relationship we'll get to actual evangelism but that's a kind of that's where missional and the evangelistic kind of blend into one another we've got to have a concern that moves us towards actual evangelism now paul obviously wanted to help people to respond to this message um but the impulse for overt evangelistic statements from him about this Jesus were initiated by him. They were initiated by him. William Booth of the Salvation Army said to his troops as they went out into different towns and planted churches all over the world, actually, in the end, he said, don't don't say to me, oh, our town is too difficult. You don't understand. There are particular reasons why it's too tough. People don't pay attention to the message. His response was, make them get their attention. Make them listen. The initiative for evangelistic advance comes from us. Spurgeon said a similar thing in his brilliant book, The Soul Winner. 
he, where he's teaching on evangelism, he says, we are men sent to raise the dead. We are not waiting for flickering little signs of life from the corpse before we actually, <laughs> oh, that one looks likely to rise from the dead. Well, I'll go into that one. Now, it's a, it's a blend. There's a seasonal change. The, the, the winter's gone. The spring's coming. There's a, the context is life. It's exactly at that point. But that Spurgeon's thing, we're not waiting for them. Well, you say, okay, well, look, Paul here, very bold. Spurgeon, extraordinarily gifted. Yes, he was a Baptist preacher. Uh, William Booth, extraordinarily gifted. Yes. And then there's me. In my world, with my life. And I'm not extraordinarily gifted and full of faith like those guys. True. But this is about serving others. It's about following Jesus and serving others. Can I ask you to just clear a space in your mind and just write the words, evangelism is serving others in that little empty space. Evangelism is serving. It's serving others. And uh, it's part of our Christian discipleship. So Christian discipleship is, of course, about becoming more like Jesus. Yes, you agree with that. It's about aligning our lives with Christ. It's, it's about bringing our character, our personality, our gifts. It's about life alignment to Jesus. That's what Christian discipleship is. Christian discipleship isn't like, I know the Bible says that, but I'm over here. I know Jesus said that, but that was those days. I'm over here. Christian discipleship is like being, it's, it's being yoked together with Christ and going his way. He's going this way into all the world to proclaim the gospel to all creation. He, he's, I'm being yoked to him. I'm being shaped by him. So he makes this one promise. It's a beautiful discipleship promise. I encourage you to receive it with full assurance and confidence. It's this, Matthew 4, 19. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Or fishers of people, I think the new translations say. Men generically. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. It's not a promise about personality types. It's not a promise about gifting it's a promise about serving. It's a promise about becoming more like Christ. But most of us say, well, you know, I, I just haven't. I mean, I know non-Christians, but I, I just can't and didn't. And then I felt bad and I couldn't. That's, that's what we do. I, you know, led someone to the... No, never. I, I just... It won't. It just doesn't. <laughs> it's like, like there's a cog that some special people have, and they seem to be able to lead people to the Lord. But I don't know. I'm just uncogged in that way. I don't have that. You know, but with this promise, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. He's clearly saying that he, he will make you, fashion you, into those who draw others to him. That's the image. You're, you're like a, like a, it's just an image. You're fishing, you're drawing people towards Christ. You follow me 
says, Jesus, if you follow me, are you a follower? Yeah, yeah, I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm going to fashion you and shape you to make you more effective at drawing people in. That's what he's saying. It's the same Greek. I mean, let me go back a bit. It's creating something in you that wasn't there before. I mean, definitely wasn't there before you're a Christian. He's creating. It's the same Greek uh, word that Matthew uses in uh, in Matthew 19:4. He made them male and female. I will make you fishers of men. He he made them male and female. So the more that we mature as followers of Christ, the greater the potential to be fishers of men and women. That's a promise I want to take hold of. I don't want to resist that. I'm following you, Lord. And you say, you're going to make me an effective person at bringing others to you. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. I want to say, yes, Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Mary's commended for that response, isn't she? When the angel came, she said, I'm going to create something in you. It's like, you're, what? Hey, that's never happened before. You know, I'm going to create this new thing in you. And, and, and Mary says, let it be to me according to your word. Well, let's do the same with this promise. I will make, follow me and I will make you, I will create in you, I will make you fishers of men and women. Let it be to me, Lord, according to your Word. Now, as I said, we tend to imagine a certain personality type, someone who doesn't mind awkwardly interrupting a perfectly normal, happy conversation with an interjection about religion and God. And then the room goes quiet and it's like, oh man, he's not going to evangelist. <laughs> what do I say now? You know, a slightly socially awkward person who doesn't seem to realize that you don't, you're not allowed to do that. You know, that's a personality type. And you think, that I'm not that type, and I frankly don't want to be. But Jesus isn't saying he's going to force you to become something that you're not, some weird personality on you that's going to make you not care about people's feelings or family occasions or whatever it is. He's saying, I will make you with your life and history and story and personality and gifts and charms and all the rest, I'm going to make you a fisher of others to bring them to Christ. Your personality, your expertise, all that you are, I'm going to fashion this into you. That's great, isn't it? So we have to say, okay, it's not about personality type. No, no, he wants to use me. And then others talk about the gift of evangelism, the gift. I haven't got a gift. You know, I just don't. I say something and they just look at me. And then I go away. And I say, I'm not doing that again. <laughs> you know, or, or I prayed for someone and they seemed to come to Christ and then they dropped away and it didn't work and I'm not doing that again because that was painful. You know, I really thought this person, when they went forward or they put their hand up or so, I thought it was real. I thought it was true. And and now they're just living, you know, just as the same as they, it was like a little blip in there. They were interested for a, for a bit. Now, you know, I haven't got the gift of evangelism. And that's why I don't lead lots of people to the Lord. So I'm going to prioritize other things in the life of the church. And we get sidetracked by thinking that the idea of being a witness is a gifting issue. But it's not a gifting issue. 
In 2009, the Barna organization, which are, who are pollsters, they did a study on spiritual gifts in the churches in America, which showed that only 1% of the church in America felt they had the gift of evangelism. And they were very concerned by that low result, just 1%. They, were, they, they thought it shouldn't, it, it shouldn't be like that. But I don't think they should have been concerned at all by that result. I'm not concerned by that result at all. How many people feel they got the gift of evangelism? 1%. No concern. Why? Because there's no such thing as the gift of evangelism. Obviously, it's going to get a low response. There's no such thing as the gift of evangelism. It's the wrong question. The right question is this. Are you a witness? That's the right question, and of course the correct answer is yes. <laughs> yes, you are a witness. If you're born again, you're a witness. You're either a good one that's learning how to be a fisher of men, and you know, and is at, or you're a silent one who's playing some kind of secret Zen game that we don't really understand. Uh, that somehow through your exu exuding your niceness, people will say, wow, you know, it must be Jesus. Then they're more likely to say, I bet she's a Buddhist. <laughs> or, so you're either a good one, or you're a silent one, or you're a bad one that's putting people off, either by your clumsiness or by your, you know, dodgy behavior or whatever it is. But you are a witness. Wherever you come in, you're a witness. You are. So we're all called upon to be witnesses, however you, we may be gifted. And if someone said, you know, for example, let me illustrate another way. Oh, I don't have the gift of worshiping. No, I'm sorry. No, I just don't. So during that bit in the service, I just kind of zone out. You know, I look at Instagram. Because I just don't have the gift of worship. It's just not a gift that I have. Now, what would you say to someone who said that? It's Batman, isn't it? No! You know? <laughs> it's like, you know it's like, but I don't have that. No! It's, it's that moment. <laughs> Glad this isn't be a video. So, or, or, you know, I don't have the gift of fellowship. Sorry. Oh, we actually, we do know people who, <laughs> who don't have the gift of fellowshipping. It's ridiculous. I don't have, it's not about a gift thing. This is part of being a Christian. Now, you might say, I'm not an evangelist. Ah, fair enough. That's, that's fair enough. You could say, I'm not an evangelist. And probably the 1% who answered about the gift of evangelism in the Barna uh, poll questionnaire were probably reimagining that question to mean, are you an evangelist? And again, 1% would be good. Um, so I think they've probably re they've corrected the, 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 the question. So it's okay to say you're not an evangelist. Great. You're not a prophet. Fine. You're not a teacher. Fine. But we are all called to be witnesses. We really are. We're called to be witnesses, which means we are called to evangelism, good newsing. And we must remember it's good newsing. It's not kind of joy killing. It's good newsing. And then you bring your giftedness and your personality and your experience to your witness. Rick Warren illustrates this beautifully. He uh, talks about the court, a courtroom scene. 
And this is helpful, particularly when you think, oh, I don't know the answers to all these difficult kind of apologetics questions, objections to the Christian faith. So in a court, there's an advocate, a barrister, the lawyer, yes? He knows, he or she knows all the kind of court procedures, the way it should work, you know, the, he knows the law in detail, and a good lawyer can swing a case. A bad lawyer could lose you a case that you should win. So a good lawyer is important. There's the kind of barrister who knows everything about the court procedures and so on. And he's investigated the case thoroughly. He's really, there's not many, if you've seen the movies, they go through this practice thing, don't they, before the, you know, the hardball, you know, uh, prosecuting attorney comes in and they practice the kind of questions you're going to need to be able to answer. They know the arguments in advance. That's kind of like the Christian apologist, or if you like, the gift of the evangelist, someone who's familiar. They're not surprised. Oh, wow, that was, ooh, I hadn't seen that one coming. The gospel of, uh, you know, Thomas. Ooh, what? You know, no, there's no surprises there. They know already the, 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 the issues that are, that are in play. But there's someone else in a courtroom scenario that can also radically shift the outcome of a case. And that person is the witness. Now, what does a witness do when they're called up? You know, the witness just gets up and says what they saw, what they heard, what they know. They don't need to know about all the ins and outs of court procedure and legal precedents beforehand and so on and so forth. They just need to get up and say what they saw, what they know, what they heard. And a reliable witness, a reliable witness can change the, the outcome of a case because it's admissible evidence in a court of law. A clear, coherent, reliable, or trustworthy witness can change the outcome of a case. So that you know what that means for you? You can do this. You can do this. There may be things that you say, well, I don't understand that. But you can be a credible and powerful witness that can actually help change someone's thinking, someone's decision about Jesus Christ. So don't write yourself off. Follow me, I will make you fishers of men and women. That's a central part of Christian discipleship. You don't have to undergo a personality change. It's not fundamentally about the gift of the evangelist. You're a witness. So my first question then, are you concerned? The other three questions are shorter than that first one. The second one is this, are you engaging? Are you actually engaging? Because Paul goes there and he's concerned and he's stirred and he initiates the evangelistic conversation. That's the stuff that's coming from him. Are you engaging? Verse 17, he begins to reason with them. And then he spoke daily. This was something that was, it was what he did. And verse 18, he then begins, this is where you get into the advocate side, he begins debating and conversing with some of the thinkers of the day. Are you engaging? Here's some easy ideas for engaging. Not all of these are directly evangelistic. Some of them will hopefully lead to evangelistic moments. You don't always have to start these initiative up. I'm just going to give you a whole load of different ideas now. You can join things that are already happening outside the life of the church, and that can be an open door for you sharing the faith. So, for example, book clubs. 
You know, people want to do book clubs. Joe jo just did a meeting with, with our city women on whenever it was this week. And one of the suggestions came up, why don't we start a book club? There are book clubs. That, how many of you are part of a book club or have been part of a book club? Put your hand up. Yeah, that's not bad. That's quite a few people. Fantastic. With non-believers in the room, it means you're sharing ideas about how you respond to different books. Now, we did have a challenge in, in recently in one situation where they decided they were going to read Fifty Shades of Grey. This is a while ago now. This is an old illustration. And so there was a, a challenge. Do, do, this is a women's group, by the way. It wasn't like a men's book club saying, you know what? <laughs> I've got a brilliant idea. No, no. <laughs> it was a women's group. And, and so this, this mature Christian woman in our church was getting different advice from different people. So some were saying, no, you shouldn't participate at all. You should actually step out during that period. And others felt, well, hold on a second. If you remove the Christian, a Christian view of how relationships should work, isn't there actually a loss at a point where actually a, a Christian perspective into, you know, what makes relationships zing, or I guess that is the theme of that book. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, you know, do you withdraw the Christian view of relationships? or do you? So that was the debate. Well, listen, once you get in mission on these kind of things, suddenly you've got to think about those questions, wherever you personally land in terms of your answer. If you don't engage, well, you, it's fine. You just have to come to church on Sunday, go to a life group or whatever yours is called, midweek, and that's it. And serve, do the coffee every now and then, be on a rotor, and that's it. it when you begin engaging, suddenly you've got these like bigger issues to deal with. And, and actually, that's where we want to we want to be. And I'm not recommending that you read those books, but I am saying we need to engage the culture. Are you engaging? So, book clubs, Beth Moore mornings, much safer ground here. Um, you know, where you're studying through the Bible at, together. And some of our women have done have done those as well. A sermon series that's coming up where there's some flyers and there's a little bit you can try and create a little bit of buzz online. That's an opportunity where you could invite people in. Um, a marriage course. We've Joe and I have done three now marriage courses. We've taken 150 couples through. How many weeks is it? Is it 10 weeks or something? Um, through the marriage course and non-believers on on each one, you know, which is great. And sometimes several non-believing couples together. Yeah, it's just a all help. Big screen debates. I've got two. I'll lend them to you. Two fantastic debates between Richard Dawkins and John Lennox, both Oxford professors hammering it out, and Dawkins not doing as well as he expected to do. And it, they are brilliant, brilliant debates. We put them up, we did flyers and all the rest of it, and it's great to have true blue non-believers just coming in, expecting that Dawkins will really give it to Lennox in a tough way. Guest speakers, that's another opportunity. Christmas Day, do you have a Christmas Day service? Christmas Day service? No, okay, I won't bang on about that, but for us it's been really good. Good Friday. So one of the Good Fridays, the first Good Friday uh, service we did in the city, we never used to do Good Friday. There was just no, no appetite for it. But we had a classical quartet uh, with carefully chosen kind of three-minute pieces interspersed with uh, readings from poetry, C.S. Lewis, Gerard Manley Hopkins, through to readings from scripture and developing the Christian story, and then a, a short 20-minute kind of gospel presentation. There are things that you can do that are easy to invite folk to. Um, quiz nights. 
I'm sure you've done some of those. Dinner and dances, an after-dinner speaker kind of thing. We've had an art exhibition, a literary event. I've done several literary events in Cape Town. and We do these close street conversations where we get someone into an expert, not necessarily a Christian, to talk about a topical issue in the town, shaping the, the inclusivity of our city or whatever it happens to be, and then Q&A afterwards. Uh, carnival we've done a couple of times uh, in observatory where... You know, we've got rides and, 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 you know, petting zoo, pooing all over the place, and the kids love it. And, and it's just been brilliant for the community around that building to actually, there are so many things you can do. There's not quite, some of them are more evangelistic than others, but are you engaging as a church? What's in the calendar? What's it, what's it look like in the calendar? Personally, you know, ask yourself, what concerns are there in Stellenbosch? How can I learn what's needed? How can I connect with business leaders? What's happening in the arts here? I don't even know if there's a theater here. What's, what's happening in education? One of our elders hosted a TEDx education conference in Cape Town. It's amazing. Six of the 10 directors of that TEDx conference were Jubilee members. And you personally, Paul spoke daily, verse 17 and 18. He's speaking regularly. He's confident. Um, his expectation is that he would be able to speak shoulder to shoulder with those who would actually argue against the gospel. So maybe you need to do a little bit more reading. Maybe you need to do a little bit more kind of research to, to get yourself equipped so that you can answer difficult questions and so on and so on and so forth. I mean, uh, Paul mentioned or some, uh, Ollie mentioned that I'm part of a pu- publishing group and You know, they're all non-Christians, you know. And um, I'm trying to uh, uh, create a kind of uh, rapport and credibility in a completely secular environment where it's quite hardball. And that's great fun. Absolutely great fun. And you have to bring something worth bringing into that context. It's great not to be uh, in any way, have any kind of favor or a free pass because you're a pastor or anything like that. They didn't know. They thought I was a journalist for ages. Um, you know, these things, are you engaging? Is there something? You know, for me, that's a one-a-month thing. Three hours discussing particular words and word order. You know, Joe would die of boredom in that. Me, I'm in like in heaven. Tell me more. Why did you use that particular word instead of this word? You know, it's like, it depends what you're into. Are you engaging with people? So are you concerned? Are you engaging? Two more really quickly. Are you relevant? Paul seems to be knowledgeable. He knows his stuff. He's not a novice when it comes to engaging with the leading ideas of his days. Not so wrapped up in the Christian subculture that he can't relate to the outside world. He's not the guy who's got his headphones on or his earphones in his ears listening only to Christian worship music. That, that he's not that guy. He's not that guy. He is, he's got his eyes open. He seems comfortable enough to enter both the synagogue and to discuss in the public square and then even to debate with Greek philosophers, which is not for the faint-hearted. That's kind of, that's the masters. He quickly grasps the context and he works within it. And you need to think of context too. Something that works really well in the city center of Cape Town or that works in London or that works in New York or any one of these American churches may not work at all in Stellenbosch. So you've got to think, this is where we are. What connects? What's relevant to where we are? I deliberately read as widely as I can. 
I don't only want to be reading Christian material. I want to read the best African literature. I want to read the best that's coming out of of, um, the English-speaking countries. I want to try and engage with that, with the history of different countries and different stories. I I want to engage with the history of South Africa from a perspective that I don't actually share. I want to read about Albert Latuli and his amazing autobiography, Let My People Go. It should should be reading for everyone who joins the church, but it certainly should be reading for every matric in South Africa. He's a father of the nation. We don't know his story, and he's a fully full-on Christian trying to shape South Africa with a Christian vision of the future. You should read it. Amazing stuff. We need to engage with some of these works of literature as well. Or you say, I'm not a reader. Well, just talk to people. Just talk to people. Ask them questions. You'll gain so much insight and information through asking questions. So he was concerned. He was engaging with people. He was relevant. And finally, are you confident about the gospel and its results? Paul was winsome but authentic. He wasn't so winsome that he backed away from the challenge of the gospel. You know, he presents the gospel, but he doesn't winsomely, I mean, that's in a winning way, but he doesn't back away or soften the message. Even in verse 30, he says, God overlooked people's ignorance about these things in earlier times, but now he commands everyone everywhere to repent of their sins and turn to him. That's a gospel challenge to repent. And a weakness with some of the kind of apologetic stuff, all this stuff about answering the objections, which I'm completely into, but a weakness with it is they love the contextualization. Yes, look at Paul. He's in Athens. He's right there. He's debating with the Stoic philosophers. And they love the the connection with culture. Look at them. He quotes their own poets. That means Paul is reading widely outside of his own kind of field. He's reading the literature of the place that he's in. That's brilliant. But they never get to the idea that God might be angry in some way or that there might be a problem with sin and that Jesus died on the cross and was raised from the dead and people need to repent. It's the whole message. And and we don't want to kind of wrestle that in in an awkward way but we, we need to be confident in the gospel. And then there was a mixed result, remember? Some people laughed at him. And did he say, oh, no, stupid me. I talked about the resurrection. He didn't say that. They laughed out loud. What? And he didn't back away and say, oh, I blew it. I really blew it. They would look so interested. And then when I got to Jesus... And sin, death, and the resurrection. And then, uh, I've got to learn not to do that in future. He didn't say that. He was confident in the gospel. And he stayed the course in terms of the gospel. There was a mixed result. Some mocked. Some said, as we read, we'll hear about that later. And some joined with him and believed. And there will be a mixed result. Whatever the evangelistic Uh, project we do or initiative that we make, there will always be a mixed result. For every good evangelistic idea, there's a very good reason not to do it. For every really great evangelistic opportunity for you as a person talking with your friend, there's a really, really good reason why not now, not with that person, not in this place. 
There's always a good reason not to. The devil has a vested interest in shutting down evangelistic opportunities. And you can put an investment in and do some great project evangelistically, and you think, well, what was the result? Hold on. We need to sow. The kingdom of God is like a man who goes out and sows, scatters seed everywhere, here, there, and everywhere. And he goes to sleep, and when he wakes up, how he doesn't know, but it, it grows. We're not just in the business of planting one thing and then saying, mm, it doesn't work. So each church maybe has their own different gift, and ours is definitely not evangelism. You know how many churches are saying that? You want to turn the culture around? Do you really care? Do you really care about this? Are you actually going to engage with people around it? Are you relevant or just locked in to the kind of subculture? And are you confident that it's the gospel that actually makes the difference? We are not, we are not playing a, a, a T20 game of cricket where there are sixes in every overs. We're not even playing a 50 overs game. It's more like a five-day test where we're defending our wicket, picking up singles, and gradually, gradually, slowly but surely, winning the game. That's more what we're doing. When my father got converted, it was 19 years after I came to the Lord. I had expected an earlier result. <laughs> that is a long game of cricket. 19 years. And a friend of mine, Sunil, who I meet every Tuesday, he came to church. He was going to commit suicide. He's, a, he's a, a, a very successful trader. He's told this story publicly. So he, he's a very successful trader in town. He's done enormously well for himself. But he's absolutely empty. Absolutely empty. Not a churchgoer. Not a Christian. From a Hindu. He tried Hinduism. He tried Buddhism. And he, on the Friday night, just correct me if I get this, the details wrong. On the Friday night, he decided, I'm going to end it. I cannot stand it anymore. He took his dog's lead. And he's got a three-story house right at the foot of Table Mountain, right in town. He tied it to the, the bottom of the banister thing there. He put his neck through it, and he thought, you know, this is going to break. <laughs> this is not strong enough. On Monday, I'm going to go and buy some proper rope and do this thing properly. Saturday, he gets a knock on his door. It's someone he hasn't seen for absolutely ages. And a non-Christian a non guy. The guy says, Sunil, Sunil, I'm so glad I got here before it's too late. So I was like, whoa, no one knows anything about this. And the guy who said it didn't know anything about it. And they chatted. They hadn't seen each other for a while. And they chatted. They had a coffee. And then the guy left. And Sunil's like, whoa, what's happening? That evening, <coughs> Saturday night, he phones up someone who's part of our congregation, Kerry. And he says, Kerry, um, can we maybe walk the dogs tomorrow morning, Sunday morning? You know how many Christians would say, ooh, a non-Christian actually wants to you know, have a conversation, go for, let's not go to church, let's, she said, no, I go to church on a Sunday, so we could do later in the day, but I go to church, put the phone, and then she prayed, God, let him phone back, and ask to come to church, so as soon as I, uh, so then he phoned her back, late that evening, and said, would you 
It's a bit unusual, but would, would it be okay if I came to church with you? She said, sure thing. They came to church. First time he came to church in Clough Street now. This is last September. Uh, no, March, last March. And I happened to be preaching on the reliability, the authority and reliability of the scriptures. And I'm dealing with, it's apologetic stuff actually. I'm dealing with, is it unreliable? Is it contradictory? Is it fairy tales? Has it been changed over the, all of that stuff? And he just said, that's exactly the kind of thing. We had a conversation and we just hit it off. And I had just had a visit from a guy who was promoting a new evangelistic Bible study. So I said, hey, why don't we meet on Tuesday morning and we'll start just kind of look at, a, you know, the first couple of chapters of the Gospel of John and just work through. Do you want to do that? He said, sure. Monday came. He didn't get the rope. Tuesday came. We started the study. For seven months, every single Tuesday, we worked verse by verse through the Gospel of John until in September, he gave his life to Christ. I mean, and when he testifies, when he tells his story, it's just so dynamic. This is a wealthy 50-something guy living in town who has found Christ. So my appeal to you is, come on, do you care? We think everyone looks fine. No one knew that on Friday he had his head in a noose, and on Monday he was going to kill himself properly. And I think the stats are that when men decide that, they, the percentage of, of them actually doing it tends to be higher. Um, but on Sunday, something happened. Because of the discipline of Kerry to say, no, I go to church on Sunday. She held her habit, her discipline. She wasn't like, yeah, I, I sometimes go and so... There's so many bits of that story that are just wonderful. Are you concerned? Are you engaging? Are you relevant? And are you confident in the gospel? So take it to heart. Not as a heavy, horrible, but in the context of a changing season from winter to spring to summer, God's bringing fruitfulness to you as a church. Amen? We're a bit over time. I'm going to pray. Father... We, we want to get this. We really want to get it, Lord, in our, in our hearts. And I pray for this congregation, Lord, by the grace and the power of the Holy Spirit, you would make us fishers of men and women. You would draw us to yourself so that we might draw others to you. And I pray, God, that you would move this church by the power of the Spirit forward in the mission. For your praise and your glory's sake, amen. Amen.